All right. Can you guys hear me? We're good? Excellent. Well, thanks for having me, guys. And Mike, thanks for setting this up. I have, as he said, I was a teacher for 11 years, and this happens to be one of my favorite topics to talk about. He's setting up a series. It's called Apologetics. And for those of you who don't know, this idea is about defending your faith using history, science, facts, logic. It's something that we don't talk about a lot, unfortunately, in our Christian circles. And we should, because it's really important to be able to defend your faith and know why you believe what you believe. We have a huge problem in our church. Some people don't like this statistic, but I'm going to share it anyway. We have a huge problem in our church. We have found through some research that 70% of our Christian youth, you guys, when you graduate high school and you go to college, 70% of you stop going to church in some way. You're not as involved as you are right now. 70%, that's a big number. That doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean that all of you are going to reject your faith. It doesn't mean that all of you stop just going to church entirely, but you're not as involved as you are right now. There's a lot of reasons for that. One of those reasons is we don't have answers to be able to answer questions when people ask us why we believe something. We go to college, and you're going to get really entertaining and interesting professors who are very brilliant, who know lots of facts, and they're atheists. And they're going to tell you that it's absolutely silly to believe in the Bible. It's just a fairy tale. It's just a myth. And science will always disprove God's existence. And if you believe that, you're foolish. That's what we're told. Sometimes we believe it so much as Christian youth, we just stop believing in anything entirely. We need to have reasons to believe that the Bible is true, that God exists, and we need to be intellectually prepared to have that conversation when it comes up. And it will come up, and you need to be asking these questions and finding answers. So I'm very thankful that Mike is putting this series together. It's only going to be about four weeks, so we're going to keep it pretty short. It's just an introduction, but I hope you find it interesting too. This is one of my favorite topics to talk about, especially with Christian teens. I hope you find it interesting. Before we get too far into this, I do have a question for you, and I want you to talk about this at your table. I want you to tell me what you would say. I want you to talk about this. What you would say if you were asked the question, how do you know God exists? If somebody said, how do you know God exists? What would you say? Now, here's the kicker. I want you to talk about the question, but you can't say anything about the Bible. You need to say how you know God exists without using the Bible, okay? Go ahead and talk about it. All right, guys, I gave you a few minutes there. How do we do? Did you guys come up with really good reasons that you could tell somebody that you know God exists without saying anything about the Bible? Because you're going to be talking to a lot of people, especially when you go to college, who don't believe the Bible, and they're going to say, well, why do you even think God exists? What tells you he exists? How good did you do? Because I've found in my experience, oftentimes, we have some kind of answers, but when push comes to shove, it's pretty weak. And it's really easy for somebody who knows anything about facts, about science, about logic, to say that's just a myth, like any other myth, like Greek mythology. And just like Zeus has been disproven through science, your God's going to be disproven through science too. So how strong was your answer really? Did you feel confident in it? I hope so. But that's what we're going to be talking about this week. How you can strengthen that reasoning so that you don't have to be shaken when somebody asks you a question like that. And again, you're going to get this question. Now, before we get too far into what I want to talk about today, there's a few other things we just have to set up. One of them is another question I have for you. You're going to, where you just have to believe. What do you think of when you think of 
faith, what's the definition that comes to mind? So someone says, you just have to have faith. You just have to believe. What's that mean? All right, I want you to talk at your tables again and, and tell me, what is faith? All right, guys, how do we do? Come up with a good definition of faith. Faith actually has a couple of concepts, a couple of different ideas mixed in there, but I've found that most of the time when I ask the question, what is faith, the answer I get back is more of like this definition of a hope so kind of an attitude. Like we're not sure something's going to happen, but we hope that it does. It's a blind faith. It's what I often get as a a response to what is faith, a blind faith. So it's like saying I hope something's going to happen. For example, if you're an NFL fan, you might say, I have faith or I believe that the Detroit Lions are going to win a Super Bowl this year. And if anybody knows anything about NFL, they're going to kind of ask you, why do you believe that? There's no reason to believe that. The Detroit Lions suck, right? They don't have a good quarterback. They don't have a great prospect. They don't have great talent. They have great coaching. I mean, they might. It's possible. It could happen. But if you know anything about the NFL, it's probably not going to happen. They've never won before in the past. There's not a good reason to think they're going to win again this year or win this year. That's a kind of blind faith. All right, here's even sillier example. I could say, I believe there's an invisible dragon in this room. I mean, yeah, I can believe that. And all of you are going to look at me like I'm an idiot because there's no reason to believe it. We're not bumping into some invisible thing. We don't see smoke and fire appearing out of nowhere. That's a silly thing to believe. But oftentimes when we think of faith, that's kind of what we think of, that you just have to believe it with no reason. That there's, you just have to kind of step out and say, well, I'm going to believe this no matter what. Now, I want to pause here for a second because it is important sometimes to have a, a, there is going to be a blind component to faith sometimes. For example, you might not know how God's going to get you through a tough situation. You might not know how he's going to comfort you when you're hurting. You might not know exactly what that looks like, and you have to step out and trust that he will do it. But that's still based on reason. You know that he's going to because of what he said in scripture and how he's worked in your life. It's not completely blind. But so often when we think of faith, we think it has to be this kind of faith, just completely blind. No reason to believe it. We just do because people told us to. That's what we think of oftentimes when we think of faith. But there's another really important aspect of faith that we often neglect. And that's the reasonable part of faith. Faith can be very reasonable. In other words, you can have good reasons to believe something. And we should have very good reasons to believe that God exists and that the Bible is true. We need to be doing that. That's an important part of faith. So on this next slide, you're going to see some examples of a reasonable faith. For example, I can say I believe I have faith that people landed on the moon. That's a pretty good thing to believe. We have a lot of evidence for that. There's audio and and video footage, we have documentation, we have the teams that worked on it, we know astronauts have their testimony. There's a good reason to believe that. Now, I wasn't there. I can't be 100% certain because I didn't see it, but we have good reason to believe it happened. That's a reasonable faith. We function on this kind of faith every day. This is the kind of faith we use all the time. Another good example is I I could say I'm going to have faith or I believe that I'm going to put up a Christmas tree this year. Right? I have good reason to believe that. I've done it every year in the past. And by the way, it's always after Thanksgiving. Are there any weirdos in here who do it before Thanksgiving? Have to let Thanksgiving go first. Don't put up your Christmas tree before Thanksgiving. After Thanksgiving is when Christmas starts. So I have good reason to believe that's going to happen for me again this year. This is a reasonable kind of faith. This aspect of faith we often neglect. We don't work on this aspect of faith. 
Um, We don't always have a good reason to say we believe something and why we believe it. But here's the thing. The Bible actually says that this part of faith is really important. We need to be working on this part of our faith. The next slide, I have a Bible verse up here that I want to show you real quick. This verse is 1 Peter 3.15, and here's what it says. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you and do it with gentleness and respect. Do you understand what that verse is saying? We have to be ready to defend what we believe. To anybody who asks us a question, we should be able to give them good reasons for why we believe what we believe. And I believe that's that good reasoning. I believe there's two parts to that. I believe you should have, and this is the most important thing you can have to explain somebody about your faith. The most important thing is having a strong relationship with Christ. I mean, that's the most important. And that's part of defending your faith. You know God, and you should be able to tell others how you know God personally. But there's another part, and this is the part that we neglect. We should also be able to give good reasons from science, from history, from fact, from reason as to why we believe the Bible and why we believe there's a God. That's the part we don't do very well. And I think one of the reasons we don't do that very well is it takes so much work on our part. We neglect it. You have to be able to, if you're going to do this and and actually have this kind of foundation and reasonable faith, there's two things you have to do. You have to be willing to ask questions and seek answers. All right, don't ignore your questions. Every single Christian should have really hard questions. All of us should. We should question, how do we know God exists? Is he really good? What about the evil that we see around us? What about all these things that are popping up politically in our, in our climate? What, how does all this match up with a loving God? We should be asking those questions. But the second part's the kicker. We should be willing to go find answers. That's the part that's so hard. One of the reasons this is hard, now I know that Mike and Josh told you, Pastor Mike and Josh told you, I was, an, I was a teacher. I don't know if he told you I was an English teacher for a long time. So I like words. Don't fall asleep. I saw some of you kind of fall asleep. When I said, I'm not going to give you a whole English lesson. But I do like words. And we live in a culture today that tells you that the most important thing you can do is amuse yourself. We just are consumed with amusement. And this is one of the reasons why it's so hard for us to take the time to seek answers. Do you know what the word amusement means the word amusement has a very interesting literal definition it's got two parts a prefix ah and a root muse ah means no like ah moral means no morals ah means no muse means to think deeply is what it actually means so amusement means no deep thinking and we've built parks around this we go to amusement parks where we just turn our brains off Right? We scroll mindlessly through TikTok. We're watch, we play video games. We watch TV. We're involved with sports and school and everything we do. We have turned our brains off. We're not thinking. That's why this is so hard to seek those answers because we have to actually discipline ourselves a little bit. We're going to have to actually read a book. That's not always fun, right? But it's important for asking questions and finding answers. We have to turn off the amusement a little bit. And if you do, you're starting, you'll, you'll be able to start to lay that foundation. So that's why I'm thankful that Pastor Mike and Josh have set this up, because we're starting to lay that foundation. But if, as we go through this, this is just an introduction. If you find this interesting, go do some research. 
There's lots of stuff out there that will continue to build on what we're talking about in this series. So do the work, ask the questions, and find the answers. Now, that's a little bit about faith. One more thing I want to talk about before we get into my one big argument here. And I only have one argument, so we're not going to stay here for very long. But the one more thing I want to talk about is this idea of faith and science. I'm sure that you have heard or thought faith and science are not compatible. That faith is believing like mythology, something that you can't prove. And science is always, you know, factual. And science will always disprove faith. Okay. That's pretty common. When you go to college, you may hear things like that. When you're in high school in your science classes, you may hear things like that. I'm just going to say real quick, that's just not true. It's just not true. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about how, just really quickly, about how modern science started in the first place. When you think of science, you think of hypotheses and all these things, there's a couple of guys, there's several guys that are really credited for starting all of that. I'm going to talk about two real fast. Isaac Newton and Robert Boyle. Have you ever heard of Isaac Newton? He thought the whole, you know, apple fall to the ground, gravity kind of thing. He is what we consider the father of modern physics. And then Robert Boyle is the same thing, but for chemistry. And there were a lot of other guys like this. It's not just these two. But they were around the, they were alive around the 1600s, 1700s, and they started what we think of today as modern science. They started it along with their friends. Here's the thing about these guys. They were very strong Christians very strong Christians. They believed the Bible, literally believed it. So they thought God created everything. So they thought they could go out and study creation, nature, skies, gravity, and learn about God. Makes sense. I mean, it makes sense. If you study a piece of art, you can learn about the artist. If you study a book, you can learn about the author. So they believed if you study creation, you can learn about the creator. Now, before them, People didn't really think that way. They thought everything came from chaos, which, by the way, we've kind of gone back to that today, where people say, oh, everything just started from chaos. Will you think about that for a second? If everything started from chaos, why would you study it? Chaos doesn't produce order. It never has. Chaos produces nothing to study. These guys didn't believe that. They believed that, that God created everything. And if you studied it, you learned about God. And that started modern science. From then on, for all the way up to today, They've continued to develop on those ideas, and all the way up to today, we have very strong Christian scientists who have developed in their different fields about their science. Science and faith are not incompatible. They do go together very often. Modern science was started by Christian guys. They took the Bible so literally. There's another verse up here I want you to see. They took the Bible so literally because the Bible actually says the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Do you understand what that says? They believe this. They believe that, that if you walked outside and you looked up to the sky, you looked up to the heavens, you looked at nature, you would see the fingerprint of God. So they said, I want to know more about God, so I'm going to study nature. That's how science got started. So science and faith are not incompatible. They go together very well. They always have, and they always will. It's just a matter of being able to understand how they go together. Which brings me to my one point I want to talk about today that's actually apologetics related. I'm only going to talk about one argument today. And that argument is called the cosmological argument. Now, I know it's a really big word, but it's actually pretty simple. The cosmological argument is just this. The argument claims that God created the universe out of nothing. Right, that's the argument. 
But before I get too far into the details of that, we need to talk about one other thing that's kind of technical. Don't go to sleep on me. I promise we're not going to spend a lot of time here. But there's one other thing we have to talk about that's a little bit technical. It's a syllogism. A syllogism. And you see the definition up here. It's a logical statement in which two in which a conclusion is drawn from two statements or propositions. I know that's a lot of words, so let me give you an example. Next slide. I, here's an example of, an, of a syllogism. I'm a man. That's my first statement. Second proposition or second statement, all men are mortal. That means all men, all people die. And so my conclusion would be, therefore, I am mortal. That's a syllogism. In order for a syllogism to be true, the first two statements have to be true. So let's go to the next slide. That first statement, is it true that I'm a man? Don't laugh. I know some of you are like, I'm not sure. I am a man. I said, don't laugh. I am a man. That's a true statement. Second statement, all men are mortal. That means everybody dies at some point. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. So our conclusion will be, therefore, I am mortal, or I will at some point die. Is that true? Yeah. See how it works? Let's try another one. Next slide. So another one will be, all animals have four legs. A snake is an animal, therefore, a snake has four legs. Is that conclusion true? No. Why not? That snakes don't have any legs. That first proposition, that first statement, that one's not true. So if, the, if either of those first statements isn't true, the conclusion can't be true, right? So even though the second statement is true, the first one's not, our conclusion's not true. Do you get how syllogism works? Pretty simple, right? So let's state the cosmological argument in a syllogism so you can see the logic behind it. So the cosmological argument says this, everything that had a beginning has a cause. That's the first statement. Second statement, the universe had a beginning. Second statement, our conclusion. Therefore, the universe has to have a cause. Right? Let's talk about that for a second. At your tables, I want you to talk about that first proposition, that first statement. Is it true? Is it true that everything that began to exist had to have a cause? So here's what I want you to do. Can you think of anything that started that doesn't have a cause? Talk about it for one minute. Anything that started that does not have a cause. All right, guys, how we do? Did anybody think of anything that began, that had a beginning, that has absolutely no cause? No. It's because everything that has a beginning, listen up, guys. Listen up. It's because everything that has a beginning has a cause. That first statement is true. You can't have something that started that doesn't have a cause. Okay? First statement, true. Second statement, go to the next slide. So the universe, did the universe have a beginning? That's what we have to prove, because if the universe had a beginning, then our conclusion might just be true, that the universe had a cause, and then we'd have to talk about that cause. But we first, so the first proposition is true. The second one, we need to prove, and that's what we're going to use science for. We're use science to prove that the universe had a beginning, and spoiler alert, it had a beginning. It's been proven time and time and time again that it's had a beginning. I'm only going to talk about two proofs real fast to prove to you that the universe had a beginning, and then we'll talk about what that cause has to look like, all right? So one way we know the universe had a beginning is what's called the second law of thermodynamics. I know some of you just fell asleep again. Please, look, we're gonna keep real, real quick, real simple. I'm not gonna go into what all this means. 
But the one thing I want to talk about with this law, which, by the way, this is a science thing, and it has been, this is one of the most proven laws that we have in science. It says a lot of things, but the one thing that I want to focus on, this is what the second law of thermodynamics says that I want you to remember, that all the energy in the universe is being used up and is not being replaced. All right, that's it. It's that simple. All the energy being used up and not being replaced. So if all the energy is being used up, can our universe be eternal? That's a hard question. So let's think about it with an illustration. If I had a car that has one tank of gas in it and just one tank of gas, can that car take a trip for all eternity? Well, no, not unless somebody's putting more gas in it. It's going to use up its gas, and at some point, it's going to be broken down on the side of the road. It's not going to be able to continue its journey. It can't take an eternal journey if it just has one tank of gas because it's using up its energy and it's not being replaced. It will have an end. So the journey can't be eternal. Make sense? The same is true for our sun, by the way. Our sun is using up all of its energy. At some point, it will burn out. Don't get scared. It's a long time away. We're not going to be here for that. But at some point, it's going to use up all of its energy. And when it does, we'll have no more sun. That's true for all of our stars. It's not just stars. It's all energy in the universe. It's being used up. And it's not being replaced. So we know that the, that the, that the universe had to have a beginning because it's going to have an end. It's not eternal. Do you understand that argument? Makes sense. All right, second thing I want to point out. So the second law of thermodynamics. That's one way we know the universe had a beginning. The energy is not eternal. The second point I like to talk about is what's called the expanding universe. So we're going to go to the next slide, expanding universe. This is our second scientific point. So the universe is expanding at a very specific rate. Not too fast, not too slow, but it's expanding. I'm going to use this balloon as an illustration. I know it's hard to see, but I drew little galaxies and stars on this so that you can see what this looks like. So give me a second. I'm out of breath. Okay, that's our universe, right? And each day, it's expanding like that. And it keeps getting further and further out. This is what it means to say the universe is expanding. Every day it grows. Okay, so what? What does that mean for the start of a universe? Well, what happens if we go backwards in time? It shrinks until you get to a point where you have nothing. It just doesn't exist. So if you go backwards in time, the universe shrinks. And what scientists found out is if you go back far enough, it would actually shrink so much it will kind of explode into nothing. Now, I like to talk about this a little bit because there's a really interesting story, I think, that goes along with this. You see, at this time in the early to mid-1900s, people didn't realize yet that the universe was expanding. They had a different idea about the universe. They thought that it was just steady or static, which just means it wasn't growing it was, or shrinking. It was just sitting in space, just sitting there, existing, chilling out. That's what they thought about the universe. Then there was this guy who came along. His name was Einstein. Ever heard of him? Yeah. Genius, right? Brilliant guy, Einstein. And he started doing some math, and he came up with this idea, the, general, the theory of general relativity, which has a lot of things in it. One of the things, by the way, that it says is that all space, time, and matter are connected. If you don't have one, you don't have the other. But something else he was figuring out at this time as he was doing this math and doing the science, he figured out through science, by the way, through math, that the universe should be expanding. 
He, he figured that out. This was at a time when everybody thought the universe was just static. He realized it should be expanding. He didn't like that, though. So you know what he did? And I find this fascinating. He didn't like it. So he decided to cheat. Einstein cheated. He was a genius, and he cheated. He didn't like the math, so he created a fake number, and he actually called it a cosmological constant. And he took that fake number, which he knew was fake, and he put it into his math because he didn't want the universe to be expanding. He wanted it to just be static. He changed his science. Do you understand what happened there? That is kind of mind-blowing to me. There's a problem here. He did some science. He didn't like the science, so he changed the science to fit with his beliefs. You see the problem? We're told all the time that science is non-biased, that it's not, that it's objective, that it's just fact, that it doesn't care about your feelings, right? But as Einstein shows us, that's not always true. He had a belief, and he didn't like the idea that the universe was expanding. We're going to talk about why he didn't like that in a second. So instead of saying, well, the universe must be expanding, and I'm just going to accept that as a fact because that's what my science says, instead of doing that, he said, no, I don't like it. Nobody else will know if I do this. I'm going to cheat, and I'm going to change the numbers. That's what he did. All right, which to me is mind-blowing that you have a genius scientist who does that. However, he couldn't get away with it because at the same time that he was doing that, there was another scientist across the United States and the Midwest, or actually the western part of the United States, who, his name was Edwin Hubble. We'll go to that slide. Edwin Hubble. Have you ever heard the name Hubble before? Hubble? Anybody recognize the name? It's famous for a telescope. And that's what Ed, Edwin Hubble did. He invented telescopes. And he was looking through these telescopes. And he actually looks out through one of his telescopes, and he looks into the sky. And now he's not using math. He's looking through a telescope, and he actually sees the universe expanding. He can prove it, not with math, but with actual evidence. He looks out, and he says, hey, wait, the universe is expanding. So he actually called up Einstein because he knew Einstein was working on this. He said, Einstein, I want you to come take a look through my telescope. And so Einstein goes over, looks through the telescope, and sees the universe expanding. And he's like, well darn. Because now he can't ignore it. He can't use his fake number anymore. And he actually said, and this is a quote, he said, I now see the necessity of a beginning. And he later actually said that that fake number he created was the biggest blunder of his scientific career because he didn't follow the evidence where it led him. And instead, he let his emotions take over. He said, I now see the necessity of a beginning. You see, it wasn't the expanding universe that bothered him so much. It's what happened when he went back in time. Because the other thing he proved is that when you go back in time and you have absolutely nothing, there's no space, there's no time, there's no matter, and there's no energy, which means you have nothing. He didn't like that. That was the implication that he really tried to reject. And by the way, he wasn't the only one who didn't like this. A lot of scientists didn't. Remember, at the time, they thought the universe was just sitting there, never expanding, it's just eternal. They could say that the universe was eternal is what they could say because it wasn't moving but now they realize that it's not eternal because if it's expanding you go back you'll get to a point where you have nothing they didn't like this another quote i like to put up here if you can go to that slide is arthur eddington he was also an astrophysicist and he was working on this same time einstein was read this quote because to me this is 
crazy. The quote says, philosophically, the notion of a beginning of the present order of nature is repugnant to me. I should like to find a genuine loophole. The expanding universe is preposterous and it leaves me cold. He's a scientist. He doesn't sound much like a scientist right there. Do you see why he says he doesn't like the expanding universe? He starts with the word philosophically. That means he doesn't like what it says about life. He doesn't like the implications the expanding universe has about his life. He says it's repugnant, which means I hate it. This is just a fact. It's just science. Why is he so upset? And why does it matter? If it's science, he should be following it. He's a scientist, just like Einstein. Not only that, he says, I want to find a loophole. In other words, I want to find a way this isn't true. Do you think that's going to affect his science? Yeah. He's very passionate about not liking this. He says it leaves me cold. This is, this is a sign. You're told that science is unbiased, that it's impartial, that it's not emotional, that it's not political. Clearly, some of these guys had problems with this, and it affected their science. So don't fall for the lie that whenever you hear some, somebody say, well, this is scientific fact, don't, don't believe it. Do your own research. Think about the facts for yourself, because stuff like this happens all the time. All right, so what is it that they didn't like so much? It was the idea that if you go back far enough, you have a beginning. So Einstein and others since Einstein, like Stephen Hawking as well, if you've ever heard of him, have proven over and over again that you go back far enough, you get to a point where you have absolutely nothing. Nothing. Nada. You understand? Nothing. All right. So then all of a sudden, out of nothing... We have something, not just something, we have the universe, the entire universe that comes from that. So we have nothing, which means we have no space, we have no time, no matter, and no energy, and then we have something. So let's go to our proposition. Everything that began to exist has a cause. That's true, we've already talked about that. The universe began to exist. Science shows us that the universe began to exist. We've proven that through two scientific evidences, the second law of thermodynamics and the expanding universe, right? So our third proposition, our third conclusion, you can go to the next slide. Therefore, the universe has a cause. That's true. This is what they didn't like, because now we have to explain what that cause looks like. This is where it starts to get kind of interesting to me, because if you have a cause at the beginning where you have absolutely nothing, and then you have something, that cause that can create the universe has to look a certain way. Go to the next slide for me. So you have absolutely nothing, no matter, no energy, no space, no time. Then you have something. What's that mean about the cause? That means the cause cannot be attached to space, to time, to matter, and to energy. It can't be a part of it. Because think about it. If it's creating matter, then it can't matter. It can't, you can't already have matter. Otherwise, matter already exists. It has to be outside of matter to create matter. If it's creating space, it has to be outside of space to create space. If it's creating time, it has to be outside of time to create time. Otherwise, time would already exist. This is what Einstein and the others didn't like because that means that this cause, another way to say all that is that this cause is supernatural and eternal. Supernatural just simply means Super means outside nature. Supernatural means it's outside of anything natural. 
and timeless means it's eternal. That's what the cause has to look like. You know what's funny? That's exactly how God's described in the Bible. That's exactly how God's described in the Bible. The Bible talks about him not being connected to space and matter, and also talks about the beginning of time a lot. God started all that. All right, so that's what we learn about the cause. Now, I would like to pause here for just a second and talk about one thing briefly, because there's usually a question that comes up right now. The question is, okay, cool, the universe had a beginning, whatever, but who created God, right? Who created God? Because if the universe had a beginning, the same has to be true for God. Well, let's actually apply the same logic to God that we just applied to the universe, all right? So who created God? Same logic. The first proposition is everything that began to exist must have a cause. Still true. But we're going to change the second proposition. God began to exist, and if that's true, then, therefore, God must have a cause. Here's the problem. That second proposition is not true. That's what we just said. If he created time, then he's outside of time which means he's eternal. Now, that's hard for us to understand because we all live in time and we know we're all going to die someday, but God created time, and logically it makes sense to say that if he created it, he's not a part of it, which means our proposition, that second one, that one's not true. So if we go look at that proposition, I think it's on our next slide. Everything had a beginning, had a cause, true. But God began to exist is not true. Therefore, he doesn't need a cause. So it's logical that God could be eternal and create all that we have. All right. So what have we proven today? Not a lot. Let's be honest. We've proven today that we didn't even prove that God is the cause for everything. Not yet. What we've actually proven today using faith and science and logic, what we've actually proven is that the universe had a beginning and that the universe has to have a cause and that that cause has to be able to create the universe. Now, it just so happens that God fits the description and there's not a lot of other things that fit that description. But we still have some more work we have to do before we can say it's definitely God of the Bible. But that's what we're doing. We're starting to lay the, the foundation. We're starting to lay this groundwork. You can have good reasons to believe that God exists and that he created everything. We're on our way. But we have more work to do. So come back next week. You're going to hear Mr. Tony talk about how you can know the Bible is real. This is an important aspect of apologetics as well. Because if the Bible is true, then what it says about God is true. And that's going to play into that God created everything and we can have confidence in our religion. All right, that's all I have for you today. So I'm going to turn this back over to either Pastor Mike or Josh. And thanks for having me, guys. I love the topic. Thanks for staying awake, most of you. Most of you. Appreciate it.